Uh, good morning. I'm actually going to talk about my work, so quite extensively for about half an hour. Uh, but just to say that although I'm a local, I actually grew up in Hungary, as my name would suggest. Uh, I'm not from Ireland. Um, and I lived here for over 10 years, and um, since the recession, or due to the recession, when I finished my PhD, uh, which I'm going to talk about here, um, I had to move to Spain to teach English. So I'm very much living the migrant experience. And I was reminded of that yesterday uh, when I arrived last night at the airport. And uh, the gatekeepers, the Irish gatekeepers, the GNI, uh, GNIB, uh, the Garda Bureau, uh, basically asked me, what am, I do what am I doing here? How long am I going to stay for? And as a European citizen, I was quite surprised. And uh, then he just said, well, you know, I'm just asking if you're signing up for social welfare. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm actually translating documents for social welfare. And then he just dismissed me. <laughs> so um, I think class very much comes into what we're talking about. So they are trying to screen people who are coming back here to Ireland um, to claim double social welfare in both countries. And I'm, I'm sure it's not a specifically Hungarian experience. So... Um, as I said, I'd just like to tell you a story, a story about my own research, um, which began as a simple inquiry into narratives or the significance of narratives in mental health interpreting in Ireland in the current times, so basically the end of the 20th century uh, and into the 21st. Uh, and of course, like every good research, it was almost infeasible to carry out um, and I would like to tell you why that happened and how I had to get around the problems. So I'm not looking at migration, mental health uh, and ethnicity from a historical point of view. I'm very much looking at from up close and personal. But because you're probably quite unfamiliar with my subject, which is community interpreting, I would like to give you an idea. And because, like any research, uh, mine was situated in a historical context, uh, it was really, really interesting to see the migration trends between the start of my research and the end of my research. So in 2005 or 2004, when I applied for funding, which I uh, succeeded to get later on, um, it was a very new topic. Everybody was talking about migration. Ireland was very inclusive. Uh, the European Union had just opened the borders uh, to 10 extra countries, including mine. And by the end of the project, in 2009, this had taken a very, very sharp turn, uh, which is very apparent in current funding in education, anything to do with migration, and mental health, or, um, or in health in general. So what does that mean in figures? Uh, these are from, all the numbers, all the figures are from uh, census figures in Ireland. And as you can see, the estimated net migration, which is how, the difference between how many people leave and come into the country, uh, have generally shown a negative uh, kind of sum, sum. Except for the 70s, strangely enough, I have no idea why this happens. If anybody can enlighten me, I'll be very delighted. So even until 1991, which is just about when the tides turned, 
uh, there were 135,000 people more leaving the country than coming in. So what happened after that? As you can see, in five years, the numbers from negatives turned to positives completely. Um, what is also interesting, and of course, in between 2006 and two, or and 2006, due to the opening of the European borders, there's even a greater number of immigrants coming into the country, including those Irish emigres who had left the country maybe in the 1980s coming back. Uh, but that's a very significant number. Uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the census in Ireland, it's held every uh, five years. It, it was postponed in 2001 due to the foot and mouse disease, so that's why we're seeing 2002 figures rather than 2001. The other interesting point is uh, the nationalities who are shown, who are marked in the census figures. In 1991, uh, most of the European countries are named uh, by meaning who were in the EEC at the time, because we're still talking about the EEC and not the EU, uh, and the USA and other. In 1996 and 2000, uh, these countries include Ireland, Northern Ireland, England and Wales and Scotland are still separate, France, Germany, other EU, so there's no further distinction, and other European. And from 2006 onwards, there is a, quite a large list, so a much more detailed list of countries. This actually is um, what the representation or the proportion of the immigrants are. It's quite interesting because it literally looks more colourful. So you can see that there are not only people from the UK or not only other EU or <coughs> other European, uh, but there are more Africans, more Asians. I did not differentiate between the countries. I was trying to parallel the two figures, so that's why I was doing, using the 1996 uh, categories. And if we look at a greater distribution or a more, even more detailed list of the countries um, who whose members or citizens enter the country, and in Ireland, uh, we can see that their number also fluctu fluctuates, but since 2009, the number of the countries whose citizens have asked for employment permits in Ireland is also declining. So definitely, between the research project between 2005 and 2009, there's a great decline in, or there's a beginning, or a, it, it's beginning to decline. The number of asylum seekers shows an even steeper drop from 2004, 2003, 2004, partly due to the enlarging EU, but the trend is very, very clear. So if there are more than 170 nationalities residing in Ireland, can we expect that they speak English? Probably not. A lot of them don't. Because Ireland is not a traditionally colonial nation, so these people don't come from the old colonies. They come from Eastern Europe, Africa, Latin America, Asia. So what happens when these people need to enter the border? Could another person from Africa last night have replied 
to the gatekeeper's questions in my place? Possibly not. And this is where my field, community interpreting, comes in. This is where we employ interpreters. And when I speak about interpreters, I do not think of conference interpreters beautifully or business-like <laughs> ladies in boots uh, with their headphones. This is not the interpreting we're talking about. Uh, it's very, very different from conference interpreting. Not so much, excuse me, not so much in the mode, because both of us, I mean conference interpreters and us community interpreters, uh, use similar modes, consecutive mostly, which means somebody speaks, I interpret, the other person speaks, I interpret. Simultaneous, which is the booth thing, so somebody interprets and I interpret simultaneously. Chuchotage, which is whispering, simultaneous whispering interpreting. In community interpreting, we also have to do a lot of site translation, which means that if you have a document, a written document, you have to interpret it directly to the client. Um, the main difference between conference interpreting and community interpreting is that in conference interpreting, you always speak into one language, and it's normally on your own. Actually, there are very, very few people who are allowed to interpret out of their own language into their second language. Uh, and we interpret both ways. So in my case, I would be interpreting from English to Hungarian and vice versa. This is why community interpreting is also called bilateral interpreting, liaison interpreting, uh, or uh, dialogue interpreting, because you're facilitating a dialogue. Um, due to the professionalization of conference interpreting, they're pretty well paid, which means for 600 euro a day. In comparison, a community interpreter, if he or she is well paid, normally she, uh, would get 25 euro, but since 2006, it's decreasing as well. So the trend in immigration is followed by, there's a, a direct claim. And we have heard as little as 13 euro per hour as well, which means that it doesn't include um, your travel time or anything, so it might take up your whole morning or whole day to get there. You interpret for an hour, 13 euro, and you leave at the end of the day. Um, and another significant difference is that the booth people with the earphones, they interpret at conferences, and we interpret for the community. There are three main strands of community interpreting. One for indigenous people, so Aborigines in, in Australia, or Native uh, Americans in Canada or uh, the US. Sign language interpreting comes here, and interpreting for immigrants. And it happens in the community. So traditionally, there are two large classes of community interpreting that we differentiate. One is medical interpreting, which is generally considered a consensual activity, so everybody is there so that the patient or client gets better. And legal interpreting, which is very, very often conflictual, and this is important, uh, because you are either interpreting or should be interpreting for the witness, uh, the defendant, or the prosecution. 
uh, unfortunately, it's not always that clear-cut, and that should be the case. However, there are other settings where you could find community interpreters, uh, schools, parent-teacher meetings, weddings, health and safety instructions, uh, for example, all construction workers in Ireland, and there were a lot of them, uh, had to go through uh, one-day training, so there were you know, a full session uh, interpreted, or uh, prisons, war situations, so you can find community interpreters in quite a large uh, number of settings. Mental health interpreting, uh, of course, as the name says, it's interpreting in mental health care. Generally, it is considered a subsetting of medical interpreting, and it is very, very important because therapy most of the time happens through verbal communication. So it's not just enough to look at a chart like an x-ray. And the sessions themselves include the client. I will not call it a patient because, for example, in psychology, uh, it's not a medical setting, technically speaking. Uh, the service provider, um, who could be a mental health, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, and an interpreter who would be trained or untrained, and who very often shares the client's ethnic background and very often shares the client's history. So this could mean that, for example, in a torture and trauma center or the rape crisis center, if there is a client from Africa who has experienced these, it's quite possible that his or her interpreter will also have undergone the same uh, maltreatment, uh, which of course has serious consequences for the interpreter. And this is what I'm interested in. what, how does the interpreter's presence or the interpreting itself changes the client's story or does it influence the client's story? Can the interpreter completely remove themselves from their own experience when they're reproducing the client's narrative? Especially that we're talking about, of course in Ireland, an English-speaking country, a Western paradigm. And they come from a variety of cultures. Uh, so what is expected and what is considered a healthy narrative in Ireland in mental health care is a linear chronological logical narrative. And if there is any divergence from this narrative, it's might con- it might be considered unhealthy. So it might be considered that somebody is having mental problems, depression, suffering from psychosis. Um, the other problem is that um, culturally, these immigrants do not come with this, these expectations of producing their narratives. So their idea of time might be very, very different from ours, or their idea of what is important in their narrative would be very, very different. This doesn't only apply to mental health care. It applies very specifically for asylum claims, for example, because they're regulated in a Western paradigm, and of course... And that's not what the immigrants uh, come with. So what is a narrative? In love of terms, is simply recapitulating past experience uh, by a verbal sequence. So once again, the idea of a sequence appears. And this is what we could call a universal narrative from our Eurocentric point of view, a universal narrative for two for over 2,000 years, 
1996 is not a mistake. That's when it was published in English, sorry. <laughs> so, um, yeah, for over 2,000 years, we expect a story, a narrative, to have unity in action, space, and time. If there is no unity, we think there is something wrong with the story. And Labov, based on evidence, I mean, he didn't just come up with this, he was actually um, interviewing black youth in America in the 70s with Waletsky. And uh, he described the parts of narrative of the abstract orientation, complicating action, and so on, which is the structure I'm also using for the presentation. However, in the 1920s, towards, oh, sorry, in the 20th century, towards the uh, end of the 20th century, it has become quite clear that this universal narrative is not the only narrative that exists. And a lot of people in their own personal lives obviously diverge from this. So Brunner calls this the logical scientific narrative, which is the universal one, and Kerr calls it universal time. And Brunner talks of narrative mode of thought, which is the lived experience or the lived time in recursive sense. When it comes to mental health care, of course, it's really important that these overlap. So there is no conflict between the universal and the personal narrative. And this is what therapists try to do. So a lot of people, for example, White and Epson, who, who are um, advocates of narrative therapy, would try to make the client rewrite their history. They try to, make, uh, try to encourage the client to, coins, to make their stories coincide with what is supposed to be historical time. And this rewriting of their narrative uh, is not only um, a means, but the end of the therapy as well. So once they have the coherent narrative which, by which they can live, they are supposed to be healthy. They have arrived at a at um, a recovery, for want of a better word. The other problem in narratives, as I said before, is that um, they might differ according to culture. So we expect this linear narrative in an English-speaking contest, uh, but people from even you know, Europe, uh, some of these uh, studies uh, which were done uh, once again on, on, on based on evidence uh, using a short film input which various nationalities, ethnicities had to recount and they were, um, they were then analysed, uh, were using very, very different strategies in their, in their narratives. So the interpreter then is faced with two problems. He or she is, on the one hand, supposed to interpret the client's narrative as faithfully as possible. Uh, but that means, obviously, not a verbatim transfer. That means an appropriation in the, the new culture, in the, the, the setting of the mental health care meeting. Um, and... This is very, very important because um, not only do they need to reconsider how, whether in the client's culture the, inter uh, the story, the narrative that they have told is actually a healthy one, but they also need to consider how that transfers into uh, the host culture. 
So what happens? Do they actually become part of the narrative? Do they use it for their own interest? Do they lay over their own experience? This is, of course, a very kind of a funny uh, version if Celia doesn't want to go through the forest because it's too muddy. She will simply mistranslate or misinterpret uh, the client's narrative. So this is kind of the background of what, uh, where I'm coming from. But returning to my main story is how does the interpreter influence evolve, um, the evolving narrative in mental health care? Does he or she become part of the co-construction? And does his or her familiarity with the client and the client's story influence the interpreting process? Because it's also possible that a story evolves throughout six sessions. So in session three, the interpreter has already heard part of the story and can automatically, unintentionally add or add a remark or retract something because, oh, we said that before. So these questions are quite important. So how would you go about trying to find this out? Well, ideally, it would, have, it would be a parallel case study uh, a, in, involving a series of sessions where the same narrative is hopefully repeated. So you hear the same narrative, you see how it changes and how the interpreter changes it. Uh, ideally, you would have the same data across a variety of languages, replicated, um, and ideally, you would record the sessions, uh, preferably by video, but at least by audio. The problem with the case studies is not representative enough, so one case study won't get you very far. It's very difficult to guarantee that in any number of sessions, you will have the same narrative. Um, and all mental health cases, of course, are individual, so compara comparability is a, a problem. And having, getting access to mental health interpreting sessions is incredibly difficult. Um, beyond that, there's already, there are already difficulties in uh, mental health interpreting research. One of them is the environment. Um, the concept of mental health care differs, obviously, culturally. Mental health care, <clears throat> access to mental health care, particularly in Ireland, is very difficult. And the relationship between the participants of the setting may also cause difficulties. And I've already mentioned that it's almost impossible to get access uh, as a researcher. It was very interesting um, what Alison said about the culturally appropriate mental health uh, diagnosis. Uh, because obviously a lot of these people don't consider their, their problems belonging to mental health care or coming under the, the label of mental health care. They're simply sad. They would never use the word depression. It doesn't exist in their language. Psychosis doesn't exist in their language uh, or in their culture at all. Uh, and when they arrive, of course, they have a, a system which is completely unfamiliar to them. They, are, they have already been through social welfare, police, asylum claims, medical examination, medical legal examination, and when they, if they arrive at all at a mental health care point, all they want is security. They want security financially, they want some housing, they want their kids in schools, um, so they don't understand this, this system at all. 
And of course, being mad uh, carries the stigma in almost all cultures. I think it's really important to, uh, to mention. In Ireland, it's not easy to get access to mental health care as an immigrant uh, because <clears throat> normally you have to be referred through a GP. And if the GP doesn't understand your language and doesn't require an interpreter, which is very often the case, uh, he or she will never know that you are suffering from any sort of mental health issues. At the moment, we have no idea how many people actually are in the system because they're so sporadic. So some of them are in kind of normal hospitals in medic mental health care or psychiatry wards. Some of them are working with NGOs like Spirasi, who works from, with the trauma sufferers. And some of them are in specialized mental health services, for example, in St. Brendan's Hospital, which, of course, um, is closing down. Um, and uh, insofar as Ireland is concerned, there's no uh, unified migration policy at the moment. I can't see it happening in the near future. Uh, there's no language rights provision. So I'm not only talking about mental health care, but at the moment, even if you are, uh, have to appear before the court, by law, it still, I think, hasn't been approved that you, or it hasn't come into effect that you actually need an interpreter. So it's at the discretion of the court. Not to mention the fact that a lot of people who interpret in courts are not trained. <clears throat> and of course, there's a personal relationship which normally only develops only develops between the mental health professional and the client, but if the interpreter enters, transference, which is the emotion that the client might transfer to the therapist, might uh, be transferred to the interpreter, who is ethnically closer. And then I haven't mentioned gender issues, religion, religious issues, anything that might compound the situation. And of course, uh, my idea was to uh, record a series of sessions between a Hungarian client and a mental health uh, professional, and there would be an interpreter. There are not that many Hungarian interpreters either, and we waited and waited and waited until some, some, something came up, and then one of my supervisors said, you could either pay your friends, one of your friends, to go in there, or you can make, uh, drive somebody mad, or something like that, but you're never going to get it. Uh, so we decided, oh yes, and the ethics committee came up with a really, really interesting idea when I submitted my, my application. Um, they didn't like case study. They, they just thought it wasn't, not that it wasn't valid, but it wasn't representative enough, which is another consideration. So how do you get access to clients' views or what is happening to the client if you can't observe them? It's very difficult because it's a very sensitive environment. You need informed consent, obviously, um, <clears throat> but you can only record or observe clients with uh, prior approval from their mental health professional, obviously. And the issue, the linguistic issue is even more difficult because how are you going to ask them, either by survey or questionnaire or an interview, are you going to use another interpreter? How do you know that the interpreter is not skewing your results? This is exactly what you're trying to, to investigate. Um, and um, also, there are problems with the interpreting quality. That's another thing 
that is not, you cannot be taken for granted. The other idea could be interviewing former clients, which an organization Cordia uh, tried to do in, in focus groups. So as the research designs d didn't seem to be yielding results, uh, we opted for, or I opted for, interviewing uh, client groups of representatives uh, rather than, than observation. But because the problem with the clients already exists, the linguistic issues, it had to be restricted to mental health professionals and interpreters. Of course, this is not real evidence in terms of evidence-based research. Um, and per uh, perceptions will always be less objective than you want. So if you ask an interpreter or ask a mental health professional, they will tell their own narrative but it will be their personal narrative and not the universal narrative that you're ideally trying to find out. Anyway, we, I went ahead with the interviews. They were narrative interviews, open-ended questions, trying to generate as much data as possible. I did get a beautifully flowing narrative in one of the interviews, recounted about six times by the same interpreter without her actually noticing that she was telling the same story. It was pretty amazing. This is exactly what I wanted in the real setting. Um, and, and it was very, very, it's very rich. This was very, very rich. Unfortunately, not interpreted, but very rich. Um, the respondents, the mental health professionals, there were 11 of them altogether. Uh, mental health nurses, occupational therapists, psychologists, and psychotherapists. And... <clears throat> Their clients covered a wide range of uh, linguistic and cultural background, and they had a very, very varied experience with interpreters. Some of them, of course, were using interpreters on a daily basis, and some of them had seen about two in their lives. So in that sense, it was quite interesting. Um, <clears throat> and the services themselves included large hospitals, small uh, small uh, specialized services or centers, and unfortunately, I didn't get any response from two uh, hospitals. The interpreters also, do I have five minutes left? A bit less. Okay, okay, <laughs> hurry up. Uh, the interpreters included uh, also quite a range of, of nationalities and quite different ranges of training backgrounds which is very important. Some people think that a day's training is sufficient to be an interpreter. It's not. A day's training is not sufficient to be a doctor, not sufficient to be a teacher, not sufficient to be a chef, and definitely not sufficient to be an interpreter. So did we find out what we wanted to know? Uh, did we get any idea of how narratives are interpreted in mental health care and what influence does the interpreter have? We have some idea. We know that uh, mental health professionals know very little about interpreting, and interpreters know very little about mental health care, and know very little about the significance of narrative organization. So they all know that it's not verbatim translation, that you interpret the message, not word by word which is great, but the higher level of organization kind of eludes uh, most of them. 
What was really interesting is that was a, a, a huge divide amongst the mental health professionals between what I called mainstream and specialized services. Mainstream is hospitals. Specialized services are for immigrants. Now, these people, uh, psychiatrists and psychologists, um, have worked with immigrants outside Ireland. I cannot tell if they are working with immigrants because they are so, so inclined or they've become interested because they had worked with interpreters. But definitely there is a correlation. What we had always suspected that it's really important to train interpreters properly uh, has been confirmed. And what has been highlighted both by interpreters and the mental health professionals was the psychological as well as the physical well-being of interpreters. And I'm talking mostly about vicarious or secondary traumatization so that the inter interpreter can be reliving the client's experience. What was really interesting is that, if you remember at the beginning, I talked about medical and, and legal interpreting as con consensual and con conflictual. And in theory, mental health care would belong to the medical, to the consensual one. But it's quite clear that there are a lot of conflictual situations, mostly in terms of the mental health professional and the interpreter kind of struggling for controlling the encounter. So that was really interesting. So where to from now? Because I'm still interested in narratives and I still would like to know. Um, you can, we can conduct a case study on another language, not Hungarian, in Ireland. Uh, we could, or I could, simulate texts or interpreted situations where I have a very controlled input and there are a number of interpreters producing, interpreting based on the same input. I think this is a very uh, interesting idea. We could record narratives, for example, asylum seekers or courts, witness statements, and compare those. We can replicate studies in different environments, and we can share recorded material. One of the problems in Ireland, we don't have any recorded material because we are not allowed to. In Sweden, for example, they have an awful lot of recorded material. They can go into the court, put their uh, tape recorder down or recorder, and they can record the entire proceedings. We can't even enter the court, I mean high court, superior court, without, and we, we, we just don't get the permission. So uh, that's where it leaves us. Thank you very much.